Section number 32 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Emanuela. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Section 32, Chapter 9, The Teutonic Migrations, 378-412, by M. Manitius, Part 1. The enormous force of the onrush made by the Huns upon the Ostrogoths have been decisive for the fate of the Visigoths also. A considerable part of the Athanaric's army, under their leaders Alavio and Fritigern, had asked for and obtained from the Emperor Valens in the year 376 land for settlements on the right bank of the Danube. From that time these Goths were federati of the empire and as such were obliged to render armed assistance and supply recruits. A demand for land made by bands of Ostrogoths under Alateus and Safrax was refused. Nevertheless, these bold Teutons effected the crossing of the river and followed their kinsmen. Quarrels between Romans and Goths led to Fritigern's victory of Marcianopole, which opened the way to the Goths as far as Hadrianopole. They were pushed back indeed into the Dobrushka by Valens' army, and the troops under Ricomer, sent from the west by Gratian to assist the Eastern Empire, were able to join the Eastern forces. After this, however, the success of arms remained changeable, especially when a section of Hans and Alani had joined the Goths. Thrace was left exposed to the enemy's raids, which extended as far as Macedonia. Now it was time for the emperor to intervene in person, the more so as Gratian had promised to come quickly to his assistance. At first, the campaign was successful. The Goths were defeated on the Maritza near Hadrianople, and Valens advanced towards Philippopolis to effect a junction with Gratian. But Fritigern hastened southward to cut Valens off from Constantinople. The emperor was forced to turn back, and whilst at Adrianople, was asked by Gratian in a letter delivered by Ricomer to postpone the final attack until his arrival. At the council of war, however, Valens complied with his general Sebastian's opinion to strike without delay, as he had been informed that the enemy numbered but 10,000. In any case, they would have had to wait a long time for Gratian, who was hurrying eastward from a remote field of war. After rejecting a very ambiguous message from Fritigern, 
Valens led the Romans against the Goths, and 9 August of 378, a battle took place to the northeast of Hadrianople, probably near the Merangia. The Goths were fortunate in receiving timely assistance from the Ostrogoths and Alani under Alatheus and Saprax after they had already defeated a body of Roman cavalry, which had attacked them prematurely. The Roman infantry also met with defeat at the hands of the Goths, and two-thirds of their army perished. The emperor himself was killed by an arrow, and his generals Sebastian and Trajan also lost their lives. When he heard the news from Ricomer, Gratian withdrew to Sirmium, and now the Eastern Empire lay open to the attacks of the barbarians. On 10th August, the Goths advanced to storm Hadrianople, as they had been informed that there, in a strongly fortified place, the Emperor's treasure and the war chest were kept. But the efforts to size the town were in vain. The municipal authorities of Adrianople had not even admitted within its walls those Roman soldiers who during the night after their defeat had fled there and found shelter in the suburbs under the ramparts. At ten o'clock in the morning, the long protracted struggle for the town began. In the midst of the turmoil, three hundred Roman infantry formed a wedge and went over to the enemy by whom, strange to say, all were killed. At last, a terrible storm put an end to the fight by bringing the besieged the much-needed supply of water, for want of which they had suffered the utmost distress. After this, the Goths made several fruitless attempts to take the town by stratagem. When in the course of the struggle it became evident that many lives were being sacrificed to no purpose, the Goths abandoned the siege from which the prudent Fritigern had from the beginning tried to dissuade them. Early on 12 August, a council of war was held, in which it was decided to march against Perintus on the Propontis, where, according to the report of many deserters, great treasures were to be found. When the Goths had left Hadrianople, the Roman soldiers gathered together and during the night one part of them, avoiding the high roads, marched by lonely forest paths to Philippopolis, and thence to Sardica, probably to effect a junction with Gratian. Whilst another part conveyed the well-preserved imperial treasures to Macedonia, where the emperor, whose death was as yet unknown, was supposed to be. It will be observed that at this time the position of the Eastern Empire seemed hopeless. It could no longer defend itself against those robbing and plundering barbarians who, now that the battle was won, actually thought themselves strong enough to advance southward as far as the Propontis and on their march could also rely on the assistance of the Huns and Alani. But here again 
the Goths had trusted too much to their good fortune, for, though on their arrival in the environs of Perinthus they encamped before the town, they did not feel strong enough for an attack, and carried on the war by terrible and systematic devastations only. In these circumstances, it is surprising that they next marched upon Constantinople itself, the treasures of which greatly excited their covetousness. Apparently, they hoped to surprise and take the capital at one blow. This time, however, through fear of stire attacks, they decided to approach the town in close array. They had almost reached Constantinople when they encountered the body of Saracens, who had come out in its defense. It is reported that by a monstrous deed, one of these, a hairy, naked fellow, caused them to turn back. He threw himself with wild screams on one of the gods, pierced his throat with a dagger and greedily drank the blood which welled forth. For a time the struggles seemed to have continued, but soon the Goths saw that they were powerless against the large and strongly fortified town and that they suffered greater loss than they inflicted. They, therefore, destroyed their siege engines on the Bosphorus and, bursting forth in single detachments, moved in a northwesterly direction through Thrace. Moesia and Illyricum, as far as the foot of the Julian Alps, plundering and devastating the country as they went. Every hand in the Eastern Empire was paralyzed with horror at the unrestrained ferocity of the barbarians. Only Julius, the Magister Militum, who held the command in the province of Asia, had courage enough for a terrible deed which shows the boundless hatred felt by the Romans for the Goths, as well as the cruelty practiced in warfare at that time. He announced that on a certain day all Gothic soldiers in the towns and camps of Asia should receive their pay, instead of which all of them were, at his command, cut down by the Romans. In this manner, he freed the provinces of the East from future danger. At the same time, this incident shows clearly the straits to which the Eastern Empire was reduced. There was need of a clear-headed and determined ruler, if peace was ever to be restored to the Empire. With regard to this, however, everything depended upon the decision of Gratian, of whose doings, we shall now have to give a short account. We know that Gratian had made efforts long before the catastrophes to come to his uncle's aid against the Goths. From this, he was prevented by a war with the Alemanni, an Aleman from the country of the Lesientes, afterward the Lingzau on the lake of Constance, who served in the Roman guard, had returned to his country with the news that Grazia was shortly going to render assistance to his uncle in the East. This news had induced his tribesmen 
to make a raid across the Rhine in February 378. They were at first repulsed by frontier troops, but when it became known that the greater part of the Roman army had marched for Illyricum, they prevailed upon their tribesmen to join in a big campaign. It was rumored in Gaul that 40,000 or even as many as 70,000 Alemanni were on the war path. Gratian at once called back those of his cohorts which were already on the way to Pannonia and put the Comes Britanniae Nanienus in command of his troops, together with the brave Mallobaudes, king of the Franks. A battle was fought at Argentaria, near Colmar, in which the Romans, thanks to the skill of their generals, won a complete victory, and Priarius, the chieftain of the Lentienses, was killed. Gratian now attacked the Alemanni, crossed the Rhine, and sent the Lysientes flying to their mountains. There they were completely hemmed in and had to surrender, promising to supply recruits to the Romans. After this, Gratian marched from Arbor Felix, near St. Gallen, eastwards along the high road, passing Lauriacum on the way. As we have already seen, he did not reach Thrace in time, and on hearing of the defeat at Adrianople, he withdrew to Sirmium. Here, at the beginning of 379, a great political event took place. It must be mentioned that Theodosius, who had formerly been the commander-in-chief in Upper Moesia and had since been living in a kind of exile in Spain, had been recalled by Gratian and entrusted with a new command. Before the end of 378, Theodosius had already given a proof of his ability by the defeat of the Sarmatians, who appear to have invaded Pannonia. The success was welcome in a time so disastrous for the Romans. This is most probably one of the reasons why Gratian, 19 January 379, at Sirmium, raised him to be Emperor of the East and enlarged his dominions by adding to them Dacia, Upper Moesia, Macedonia, Epirus, and Achaia, Idest, Eastern Illyricum. The Visigoths under Fritigern had, without doubt, been the moving spirit in the war, although the Ostrogoths had played a valiant part in it. After Ermanaric had committed suicide, Widimir had become king of the Ostrogoths. He lost his life fighting against the Alani, and seems to have been succeeded by his infant son, in whose name the princes Alatheus and Saphrax reigned supreme. These, as we saw, joined forces later on with the Visigoths and contributed largely to the victory at Adrianople. It appears that for some time after this, both tribes of the Goths made common cause against the Romans. At first, the two emperors were successful in some minor campaigns against the Goths, and while Gratian went westward against the Franks and perhaps against the Vandals 
who had made an invasion across the Rhine, Theodosius succeeded in creating at Thessalonica a place which he chose as a strong and sure base for his further operations, a new and efficient army into which he admitted a considerable number of Goths. Before the end of 379, he and his forces gained important successes over the enemy, who found themselves almost entirely confined to Lower Moesia and, owing to a lack of supplies, were compelled to renew the war in 380. The Visigoths under Fritigern advanced in a southwesterly direction towards Macedonia, whilst the Ostrogoths, Alani and Huns went to the northwest against Pannonia. Theodosius, who hurried to meet the Visigoths, suffered a severe defeat in an unexpected night attack. The Goths, however, did not follow up their victory, but contented themselves with pillaging Macedonian Thessaly, whilst the Emperor Theodosius lay a prey to a protracted illness at Thessalonica. During this period, Macedonia suffered terribly from the barbarians. At last, when Gratian, whose assistance Theodosius had implored, sent an army under Bauto and Arbogast, two Frankish generals, the Goths were compelled to retreat into Lower Moesia. Gratian himself was at the same time forced to take command of an army again, for his general Vitalianus had been unable to prevent the Ostrogoths, Alani and Hans from invading Pannonia. As this barbarian invasion was a great danger to the Western Empire, it was highly important for Gratian to make peace with the enemy before suffering great losses. This he accomplished by assigning Pannonia and Upper Moesia to the Ostrogoths and their allies as federati. This settlement of the barbarians at its eastern frontier guaranteed the peace of the Western Empire in the immediate future. For the Eastern Empire also peace seemed now ensured. When Theodosius, who as an orthodox ruler commanded greater sympathy from his subjects than his predecessor, the Arian Valens, had recovered from his illness, he made a triumphal entry into Constantinople, 24 November 380, and here, 11 January 391, the Visigoths Athanaric arrived with his followers. He has been banished by the Goths whom he had led into Transylvania, and not desiring to ally himself with Fritigern on account of an old feud, asked to be admitted into the empire. He was received with the greatest honors by Theodosius, but only survived his entrance by a fortnight. The high honor shewed to Athanaric was evidently intended to create the impression among the inhabitants of the capital that war with the Goths was at an end. Perhaps it was also hoped to promote more peaceful feelings among Frigitan's followers. We are also led to believe that Theodosius soon commenced negotiations with this dreaded prince, which were brought to a conclusion in 382 by the Magister Militum Saturninus. A treaty of peace 
was concluded at Constantinople, 3 October 382, by which permission was given to Fritigern and all his Goths to settle as allies in Lower Moesia. They were also to retain their domestic legislation and the right to elect their own princes. It was their duty, in return, to defend the frontier and to furnish troops, which, however, were to be led by their own chiefs. They obtained the districts assigned to them free of tribute, and moreover, the Romans agreed to pay them annually a sum of money. This treaty was, without doubt, at the time a triumph for Theodosius, and as such it was loudly praised by the emperor's flatterers. But, on closer examination, we shall see that the Romans had only gained a momentary peace. From the outset it was impossible to accustom the Goths, proud conquerors of the Roman armies as they were, to the peaceful occupation of tilling the ground and, as they had doubtless been allowed to settle in Moesia, in a compact mass, retaining their domestic government, all efforts to Romanize them could but prove vain. Beside this, the Danube, with the exception of the Dobrushka, was stripped of Roman troops, and the ever-increasing number of Goths who entered the Roman army was naturally a considerable danger to it. Moreover, the majority of the Goths were Arians, and the rest still heathens. A year previously, however, Theodosius had not only attacked Hitanism, but had issued a law against heretics, especially Arians. He had even sent his general, Sapor, into the east to expel the Arian bishops from their churches. Only bishops professing the Nicene faith were to possess the churches. Thus, the peace could not possibly be of long duration. How greatly political questions excited the Goths and how passionately their national feeling would sometimes break forth is shown by an event which occurred in Constantinople soon after 382. One day, at the royal table, two Gothic princes, who were specially honoured by Theodosius, gave free utterance to their opposite political convictions. Erwinwulf was the leader of the national party among the Goths, which considered the destruction of the Roman Empire their ultimate object. He was an Arian by confession. Fravitta, on the other hand, was the head of that party which saw their future salvation in a close union with the Empire. He had married a Roman lady and had remained a heathen. The quarrel between the two party leaders ended by Fravitta drawing his sword and killing his opponent just outside the palace. The attempts of Erwin's followers to take immediate revenge were met with armed resistance on the part of the imperial palace guards. This incident, doubtless, helped to strengthen Fravitta's position at the emperor's court, whilst he had made himself impossible to the Goths. At this time, a new danger to the empire arose from those Goths who had remained at home and had been conquered by the Huns. 
As early as the winter of 384 or 385, they had taken possession of Almiris, a town to the south of the estuary of the Danube, which, however, they left again, only to return in the autumn of 386 to ask for admission into the empire together with other tribes. But the Magister Militum, Promotus, commander of the troops in Thrace, forbade them to cross the river. He had the frontier carefully guarded and met their attack with their rules, cleverly conceived and successfully executed by sending some of his men to the Ostrogoths under the pretense of betraying the Roman army to them. In reality, however, the soldiers of his reported to Promotus the place and time of the proposed night attack, and when the barbarians, led by Odotheus, crossed the river, the Romans, who were posted on a large number of anchored boats, made short work of them. This time, the better strategy of the Romans gained a complete victory of the Goths. To commemorate this victory, the emperor, who subsequently appeared in person on the battlefield, erected a huge column ornamented with reliefs in the quarter of the town which is called Taurus. Meanwhile, 25 August 383, Gratian had been killed at Lyons at the instigation of the usurper Maximus, who had been proclaimed emperor by the army in Britain and had found followers in Gaul. At first, Theodosius pretended to accept Maximus for a colleague, but in 388, he led his army against him and defeated him at Lycia and Pettau. In the end, the usurper was taken prisoner and killed at Aquileia. Theodosius now appointed Valentinian II, Gratian's youthful brother, Emperor of the West, only reserving for himself the co-regency of Italy. He then sent his experienced general Arbogast into Gaul, where the Teutons, from the right bank of the Rhine, had seized the occasion offered by the quarrel for the throne to extend their power beyond the frontier. Three chiefs of the Ripuarian Franks, Genobots, Marcomir and Sunno, had indeed crossed the Rhine in the neighborhood of Cologne and made a raid upon the Roman territory. When the Roman generals Nanienus and Quintinus went to meet the raiders at Cologne, one part of them left the borderland of the province, whilst the others continued the march into the country, till they were at last beaten back in the Carbonarian forest, to the east of Tournai. Quintinus now proceeded to attack the enemy and crossed the Rhine at Novesium. News. But after pushing forward for three days into the wild and pathless regions on the right bank of the Rhine, he was decoyed into an ambush, in which almost the whole of his army perished. Thus, it appeared likely that the Roman rule in the Rhenish provinces would before long be completely overthrown, for the generals Carietto and Cyrus, whom Maximus had left behind, found it impossible to put a stop to the barbarian raids. At this juncture, Arbogast was sent by Theodosius to save the West. His first act was to capture Flavius Victor, 
the infant son of Maximus, and to have him put to death. Then he reinforced his army with those troops which Maximus had left stationed in Gaul, and which together with their generals Carietto and Cyrus were easily won over to his side. Last of all, he turned against his former tribesmen, the Franks, and demanded from them the restitution of the booty and surrender of the originators of the war. When these demands were refused, he hesitated to begin war by himself. He found it difficult to come to a decision, for the fate of Quintinus' troops was still fresh in his memory. In these straits he wrote to the Emperor Valentinian II, who seems to have urged a friendly settlement of the fields. For in the autumn of 389, Arbogast had an interview with Marco Mirenzuno. The Franks, possibly fearing the mighty Theodosius, gave hostages and a treaty of peace was concluded which cannot have been unfavorable to the barbarians. In this way, the Western Empire showed considerable indulgence in its treatment of the Teutons. The Eastern Empire, on the contrary, and especially the Emperor, was soon directly and indirectly exposed to the serious troubles from the Visigoths. We know that the Goths had extended their raids as far as Thessalonica. In this large town, the second in importance in the Balkan Peninsula, there existed a certain amount of ill-feeling against the barbarians, which was greatly increased by the fact that the highest offices, both civil and military, were chiefly held by Teutons. Moreover, the town was garrisoned by Teuton soldiers. End of section 32 Recording by Emanuela